Hello and welcome to another episode of The Archers. I am one half of your co-host, Katie. Hello, this is the other half of your co-host. My name is Madison. Oh, Madison, you sound crystal clear today. It's so nice to hear your beautiful voice. Oh, thank goodness. I'm so happy to hear yours, Katie. What a chaotic, (laughs) chaotic time it has been. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This summer has been, well, cruel. It's been a cruel summer. Talk about blonde summer. It's been a cruel summer. I know. Who knew that back in June during the heaven of Pride Month, do you remember how happy we were in June? Yes, I do. And I haven't felt joy like that since June. (laughs) Like July, July slipped away like a bottle yeah. of wine. Like I don't, Absolutely. I don't, I don't know what she's singing about August because that was <laughs> fully July. Like yeah, July really is like one of those little rocket popsicles. You know the red, white, and blue ones. Like okay. July, disgusting, sticky, and melts far too quickly. Far too quickly. Yeah slips away so yeah it's really nice to see you to hear your beautiful voice um and it's great to be back on the patreon yes um and today we have a very special treat for all of you rebecca harkness fans out there betty's bitch pack if you will because today is another installment of the archers book club where we are reading blue blood by craig Unger. The one and only, the the acclaimed New York Times bestselling author. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't know anything about Craig, but I know I one thing about Craig. Right. We I was about to say. His other two books, one okay, so he has a few other books, but one of his yeah. other books is about Bush being responsible for 9-11. And then another one of his books. It's about Trump being respons- responsible for Everything. something for, yeah, for bad things. It was something having to do with Russia. Absolutely Russia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and now that I'm getting deeper into this book, I'm wondering, like, truly, if the Rebecca Harkness story was like a pipeline to this political talk. Oh, interesting. I wouldn't be surprised. What I'm it's so interesting because he definitely comes across as a bitchy gay man in this. So I would love yes. to read one of his political books and be like, is this like a little bitchy gay man talking about Bush? Right. President. And President and Bush. that's the thing. He he talks about um Rebecca as if he's just like, yeah, like a bitchy little gay man. That's all it is. You're right. Yeah. 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 Uh but anyway, so yeah, that's what we're talking about today. And I also have exciting news um, that our little friend, Taylor Jenkins Reid, a.k.a. the author of Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, for all intents and purposes, she's the author. All evidence in copyright and outside of copyright points to the fact that Taylor Jenkins Reid is the sole author of Evelyn Hugo. At Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And during the past few weeks, or past week, I read another book by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who happens to take place in the same universe as The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, called Malibu Rising. And this specifically follows the story of Mick Riva, who is Evelyn Hugo's third husband. Um, This story, or probably not 
is it his third, her third? Yeah, I think it is her third husband, Mick Reba. Um, it fascinates story- me that you can remember her husbands and like what number <laughs> they were because I don't remember what their names were. I don't remember what order they were yeah. in. Yeah. Like truly don't recall. I know Harry Cameron, but that's it. Right, right. Yeah. When you said Mick earlier, I was like, I don't know. Who? But you're yeah. like the one she married in Vegas. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, right. Okay, yeah. So the one she married in Vegas is more important than what number he was. Um, we know for sure that he's like the musician that she married in Vegas. And Malibu Rising is about his children from his first marriage. So again, these are all fictional people that take place in like a pseudo fictional Hollywood and um yeah so i read this book and do i think it has to do a lot with taylor swift no i don't think it has a lot to do with her but i do think it's interesting to think about taylor jenkins read books considering the like bible the like holy tome that seven husbands has become for gaylers yeah totally and the way that we you you talked about before we started recording how the writing style was um like not your favorite and how no. we both didn't love the writing style in Seven Husbands either particularly Monique's parts mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so that's another interesting thing having to do with like the Taylor verse of it all is like the yes. tone of Monique's voice and then the tone of Malibu Rising being the same as that. But then those yes. random parts in Seven Husbands that are, like, so good. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I say yeah, random parts because the book itself as a whole I don't think is a great piece of work. But right, I, right. there are parts that are so good. So Yeah, absolutely. In the there plot, are parts that are like, so good in the plot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very so glad you read it because I didn't want to be the one. I, I, I wasn't planning on it, but I've seen so many people raving about it. So I love to hear your honest feedback of like, it yes. was okay. Yeah. And, you know, because it takes place in the 80s, it takes place in 83 in particular. Um, and we know that Blue Blood was um, released in the late 80s and Rebecca and her daughter died in the in Mm -hmm. 82 right so I think I do think that things will kind of intersect and I might be reminded of it and um yeah if I can really do one thing it would be to tell you all to not read Malibu Rising um I did not enjoy it. I did not think it was a good book. It was very frustrating. The one highlight is I will say there is a lesbian character in it who has a um, neutral to positive portrayal. Um, But again, it's kind of like, I would say that the lesbian character in Malibu Rising is a single lifesaver on the board of the Titanic. Oof. (laughs) The lesbian is the one playing the violins while this shit's going down. That, okay, that's a much better metaphor and more apt, I would say. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just just show goes on. Like, I don't know. The show is going on and that lesbian yeah. is going down with it. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> um, blessings to her. Blessings to her. And also there is a line in like the first um, chapter of the book um, because it does take place again in the exact same universe as Evelyn Hugo. 
um, where someone's like, back in 79, an executive said that he had definitive proof that Celia St. James was gay. What a crazy conspiracy theory that is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of fun being like, oh, Celia, I know her. <laughs> right. Right. Tee-hee. The crossover. That's The crossover. Haha, <laughs> I know her. Haha. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, so into Blue Blood. Yeah. And there is a little, there is a little bit, I don't know if I took notes about this part, but there was a little part having to do with Malibu and Surfer Boys. Um, One of Rebecca's daughters married, like, a surfer guy from California who's, like, the son of, like, a rich businessman. Um, Her daughter, Terry. Yeah. So there was a little bit of an 80s surfer. Yeah. Yes, Malibu was very big in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. for this reason, for little surfer boys. Yes, for for nepotism yeah. babies to go surf. Uh-huh, that's right, that's right, <laughs> yeah. Um, so where did we leave off in Blue Blood? We, we left off, we just finished chapter 10. Chapter 10, The Go-Go Years, a.k.a. where we learned that um, it was not a neighbor's dog that she died, Key Lime Green, but in fact her psychic slash lover's precious white cat. Right. Who her uh, lover, what is? Ava. Okay, again, we are assuming Ava. Eva. Um, We are assuming that Eva is her lover. We have no evidence for that precisely but the fact that she lived in the same building as as bobby and she moved bobby into that building so that he would be in the same building as her so she could go see her psychic more and Mm -hmm. and no one would be weirded out Mm -hmm. yeah and so yeah yeah and and then the specific rebecca didn't like seeing her out by the pool with her precious white cat or the fact that Eva would order filet mignon for her cat. And as we talked about, that's a very lesbian problem to be jealous of your partner's um, affection for the cat. Yes, totally. Yeah, yeah. So that's where we left off, kind of uncovering that key Taylor information. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is that is about where we left off. And chapter 11 is titled The Crack in the Mirror, which, interesting. That is interesting. The Crack in the Mirror. That's a very Taylor Swift type lyric. My little encyclopedia, my little lyric encyclopedia. Does that line up with any Taylor lyric off the top of your head? Watch my shattered edges glisten. Mm-hmm. Right in mirror I think ball. I think it lines up with mirror ball, just the whole metaphor of it all. I love that. Of like every crack turns into a spectacle for someone for for the general public to enjoy. I love that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so we learn a lot more about Rebecca's kids in these next few chapters. 
which I found interesting sometimes and not interesting at all other times. <laughs> so I did, <laughs> I did skip over some things that mm. didn't feel relevant to Taylor. Um, right. Or even just things I just simply don't want to talk about um, because as you'll see later on, Rebecca's son, for example, Alan is insane. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But we'll get there. So, yeah, we'll get there. The crack in the mirror is mostly about Terry and Edith, who are um, Rebecca's daughters. Of mm-hmm. course, Edith is the one who um, is William Harkness's child. Right. Edith is right. the only right. one who is William's. And th- she, she's in the gilded um the gilded cage yes yes dolly painted the portrait of her in the gilded cage which i did go on an hour-long research today trying to find this painting again and i cannot find it i truly do think that like edith and the family had it like removed from the internet because i can't find it anywhere i can't even find record of it other than in this book Oh, God. Uh, What are we going to do? Okay, so this is the thing. I think that we're going to have to do a research trip in New York City. Um, Well, here's the thing. The Harknesses have a giant memorial um, of all of their graves at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Oh, wow. So I do think that we need to do an Archer's Field trip. And I think also... As I was researching a lot more today about Edith um, and just uh, about Rebecca in general, the deeper I get into it, the more I almost feel indebted to these people in a very weird way. And I wow. don't know if it's because it's such a like random niche forgotten history of a person like mm-hmm. Rebecca and like this whole story is so random. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel like I have to go like pay my respects to Edith. Like... I I think that makes a lot of sense considering what we've learned about her life. Yeah, and and we'll learn even more. Like it's it's really insane. Mm-hmm. So the crack in the mirror is mostly about Edith, but it's odd because most of this chapter is about Terry, even though the crack right. in the mirror itself is about Edith. Well, you know, I mean, sorry before we actually get into it, but oh, just yeah. the whole title of Blue Blood, it's like blue blood is all about the harkness blood and so even though it's like all about the harknesses in general and it really presents itself that way it definitely revolves around rebecca aka betty and Mm -hmm. edith the most and they Mm -hmm. are kind of the like edith especially is the like tragic character of Mm -hmm. this biography like i keep going back to the fact that she died just a few months after her mother despite Mm -hmm. in her 30s like so 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 young and like that is the scene like the scene of her mother dying is the opening scene of it and like Mm -hmm. the fact that she was the only one around is when she was the one that was the most mistreated i mean you can't even say they were all but like no, but the one that was literally in a cage her entire yeah. life. Yeah. Uh, yeah, wait till we get to... Uh, you're going to freak out. I can't. Um, 
but yeah, it is interesting because it is just about those two. But then there's like all these other little random stories that are happening on the side and all these people's opinions. Like it's just so mm-hmm. it's so um, gossip folklore, last great American dynasty. Everything is true and nothing's true. Yes, like, yes. Um, what's that show? Fleabag, like how they the opening oh, yeah. scene is like everything you're about to see is true unless it's not. Yes, exactly. Like, that's exactly what this book reads as. Oh, I love that. So good. Um, So, Crack in the Mirror, this chapter starts out with saying that, like, she asked one of the, the workers of the Harkness company to put out a press release saying that she got married aboard a ship. And this is Terry, Rebecca's daughter. Because she got pregnant on accident, like, suddenly. And wow. that was her solution. She she had to put out a news story saying they got married. And I'm pretty sure I found the actual, like, clipping of the newspaper online. <gasps> Ooh! Yeah. It was, it was very interesting. I mean, like, it's... Eh, they were doing PR back then. Like, oh, yeah. this is... That was, like, Kissgate recovery vibes. Like... <laughs> oh, wow. She said, I would like you to stop shipping me with my friends. <laughs> Quite literally, on a ship. Ship! (laughs) (laughs) No, I would like you to start shipping me with this man. (laughs) Exactly. That's what she said. Um, And Uh even though that was not true, as the pregnancy went on, they did end up actually getting married at Holiday House later on. Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, and Bobby, who, if you remember, is Rebecca's gay best friend, basically, uh-huh. but also lover, quote-unquote, even though everyone's right. like, they didn't have sex. Supposed, yeah. Um, which, like, yeah, sure. Companion. Partner. Companion. Like, I get it. Um, <laughs> Bobby said, this random interlude, also, Bobby said that him and Rebecca liked to ride around in the fire trucks since um, Rebecca had taken over the, the old firehouse in Watch Hill for her ballet studio. They also got to ride around in the fire truck sometimes and they would purposefully blare the sirens outside of the neighbor's houses that they didn't like. And that's giving the loudest woman this town has ever seen. Oh my God, what a funny joke. Like, I truly believe that's where that line came from. That's so funny. Like them riding on the fire truck. There goes the loudest woman. Like, goddamn, they don't shut up. Like, why was and she doing this? Because she's just, I mean, it's it started from the bitch pack days. She said from the beginning, and quote, I wanna I wanna do all the bad things. Yeah. Like that was exactly. literally a quote from her. Exactly. All the bad things. She's like, I just want to be a menace. That's she's obviously gay. I don't know why I ever falter with being like, well, maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. No, That's it's like she's obviously gay, and like, like Craig Unger is telling us between the lot to read between the yes. lines. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh I God. think he made it more obvious than I even expected him to for a book written at this time. Like, it's so yeah. cheeky at times. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I didn't write this part down, but he also said that him and. One of their other friends, who's like a guy ballet dancer, would wear wigs and makeup and get in drag to do these fire truck. Oh um, my god, drives. it was like the original Pride Parade. <laughs> no, literally the Pride Parade through Watch Hill, Rhode Island. No wonder everyone hated her. They were just homophobic. Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
if this isn't us though like blaring through the swifty fandom like I know. this is literally the arches <laughs> we need a photo of like us like all of us on a fire truck on a fire yeah. truck just yeah. being the most annoying it's too bad okay i was about to say it's too bad that taylor literally lives in holiday house and so, like, we couldn't do, like, we couldn't have Gaylor Fest. I know, in... Gaylor Fest would be perfect there. Yeah, it literally would be so good there. But, like, that's insane. Like, we're literal stalkers if we go to where Taylor lives. I know. I wish she would just at least let us, like, borrow it. I know, right? Why doesn't she put it on Airbnb? That's what I'm saying. Oh, my God. She makes so much money. So much. And, yes, we'd have to book it out, like, seven years in advance. But whatever. Yes. And yes, we would all have to pull together our life savings as a community to yeah. afford it. But whatever. <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. And no, it wasn't a mansion. <laughs> it was. It was in this case. But it was. It really was. It's a mansion. Um, but yeah, that was like a random interlude from Bobby. I don't really know why he brought that up about the wedding, but he did. Um and then it goes into how Terry met her husband, who his name is Tony McBride. He was like the son of some fucking rich business guy. Who knows? Mm. They met at the Southampton Beach Club. Like all of these little rich country clubs that they just like meet their little people at. It's giving cowboy like me always. This is like the mm. third time someone in this book has met their lover at a country club. Oh, God, I love that. Um, Terry... Terry's husband, Tony, was blonde, athletic, all-American, and the archetypal California beach boy. So that's kind of what I was thinking of when you mentioned Malibu Rising. I was thinking of Tony. Definitely. Definitely. And it's very funny because a Malibu Rising has – is very, like, California-based. Like, they're all, like – like, the four children that it's about mm. all – are born in Malibu, grow up in Malibu. Um, but the thing is, is that um, Mick Riva is a very bad father and mm. doesn't pay child support when he divorces the mom. So even though that they're all his children, um, they don't have any money. Oh, that's interesting. So, yes. Yeah, so they're not actually rich kids. They're all very poor growing up in Malibu. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> they, uh, imagine yeah. your dad being like this rich famous guy and he's not giving you shit I, I have to say this is one of the weirdest parts of the book because it it's like to me i have to wonder what taylor jenkins reed's own financial upbringing was like because there's a part in the book after they get divorced for the second time okay so yeah so mick reva is with the mother June, who's just like a regular middle class woman. Um, and then he, after they have uh, two children together, um, he leaves, and then he marries an actress, and then he marries Evelyn, and they get annulled after Vegas, whatever. But then he comes back again, and they get married again for the second time, and they end up having another child together. Um, but then he divorces and leaves. So after the second time he divorces and leaves, he, like, it seems like the child support payments never went through. 
like it, it's like they he never set up the payments again it genuinely seemed like a clerical error but the mother had too much pride to call mick who's like a multi 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 millionaire the right. most man in the world too much pride to call and be like you need to send us child support so instead they literally were so fucking poor and like at the end like spoiler alert when mick comes back into the picture and like talks to them all they're all like you literally made us like starving like i had to drop out of high school to work because they didn't have any money and he's like i'm so sorry about that end of book like he's not like what the fuck i thought i had child support payments like i just don't understand like what in what world are you scrimping never ever ever wanting to just because of your pride you're not contacting your multi-millionaire father for money i just don't feel like anyone would do that if they were really down to the to and being... they are like impoverished like sitting in the dark in the house can't like literally no food no money like have no like terrified anxiety trying to make things work i don't and know anything never... about taylor jenkins marine but that sounds ridiculous like that sounds i don't know it's just such a weird storyline to play off of if it's you didn't so grow up like like actually your... really poor right. it's so like pull situation. yourself up from your bootstraps yes like, exactly we won't take handouts yeah from our mean daddy it's like bitch if i had a rich no, dad i need handouts i need <laughs> handouts yeah i'm a child I that's need the handouts. least i could get yeah. Yes. Ew, I really hate that. I really, really, really hate that. That whole plot line is about them being poor and not reaching out to their dad. Cause yeah, that's literally the main point. That. I'm trying to be the bigger person. Like, no, survive. To yeah. Get, like, yeah, literally. Ugh. I know. Yeah, that doesn't American make sense. American propaganda. So, anyways, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, I'm picturing that all American boy being one of the rich boys at malibu mm -hmm. exactly he's one of the rich ones one of the rich ones and bobby described him as gorgeous but he said oh, bobby. he was gorgeous like a greek vase beautiful but absolutely nothing inside <laughs> oh my god the pettiness of these homosexual men mm. i know that's how you also, know they're gay no straight man is coming up with that good of a metaphor like no and also a greek vase greek vases are notoriously depicting men having sex with each other yeah like gay yeah so greek that's men very are word gay very homoerotic yeah. yeah exactly um and then after terry and tony got married they honeymooned for three days at um capricorn which was you know Rebecca's place in the upstate that had like all the different houses, and they would all go there when they weren't in Watch Hill. So annoying. Yes, Capricorn. Um, mm -hmm. So they they honeymooned at Capricorn for three days before Terry wanted out of the marriage, and she was still pregnant at this point, and she wanted an abortion. Rebecca did not want her to get an abortion. Um, and the only way that terry could have gotten an abortion during this time was in japan um and 
so Terry tried to secretly fly out of Capricorn and the in upstate New York to go to Japan to get the uh, abortion. And Rebecca had already paid people and like all the workers that are around the house and everything and the drivers to tell her if Terry tried to pull any stuns like that or if she tried to terminate the pregnancy. Um, so she did not end up getting an abortion and she did give birth that March of 1967. Fabulous. Just great. Um, and around the time that they were, that she was pregnant and her and Tony were um, like honeymooning or whatever, they also spent a lot of time in Hawaii near the end of her pregnancy. Um, and that is why when the baby was born, they named her Leilani. Um, which is so interesting. And the baby was named Leilani legally, but they actually ended up just calling her Angel. Huh. So I'm going to use the name Angel because that's what they ended up actually calling her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it later talked about the fact that after the baby was born, she was actually being raised in Hawaii for a few months by a Hawaiian nanny, by a native Hawaiian nanny. And it doesn't really matter to the story that much, but I am Hawaiian, so I found that really interesting that they yeah. spent yeah. that much time in Hawaii, had a Hawaiian nanny raising their baby for a second. Yeah. Like, and gave her a Hawaiian name. Yes. Like, that's a very... <laughs> yeah, that's a, a very, like... <laughs> um. That's that's very like rich white person. It's very colonizer, yeah. Very colonizer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, um, the sad part though is they didn't stay in Hawaii for very long because Angel was not developing properly. Mm. This baby, like after three months, still couldn't lift its own head up. Mm. Um, so she ended up becoming blind. The baby was blind. She could see certain light fractures, but that's pretty much it. Um, basically what happened is the two halves of her brain were not developed all the way so they weren't communicating with each other she suffered with epilepsy seizures this baby this baby that terry didn't want <sighs> um and the baby ended up developing like diabetes and all oh. of the doctors were saying that this baby needs to be put in like some sort of like intensive care unit and basically like hospice for babies and children mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because they were like, this baby's not going to live long. You don't want this child to live a very oh, long life anyways. Like all of the doctors were like begging. Um, but Rebecca refused to that answer and just went to different doctors that she could pay more to tell her what she wanted to hear. Um, of course. Yeah. So after Terry was saying, I want to give this baby up and just put her in a home to die. Very sad. Um, Rebecca said no and then the baby went to live with Rebecca and Rebecca would pay for all these expensive nurses and doctors to be driven up from New York City to watch Hill to take care of her and to like give her all the medicine she needed um, and Terry actually said that Rebecca was very good about it about the baby and that she liked being a grandma. And That's the thing. Grand mothers who are horrible mm -hmm. mothers end up being good grandmothers. Exactly. Because yeah. this is a baby now and you'll see later on why. Like you'll die as to how this 
progresses because it's so predictable for like of course. a narc like Rebecca to <sighs> of course of course you love this baby that can't speak to you yet and that is literally exactly. dying and like so reliant on you to keep it alive yes. like of course you as Rebecca Harkness the narcissist like also the thing about grandmothers versus mothers is that mothers know that they're the only one that this baby has so it's like mandatory and like it's like a burden but when you're a grandmother it's such a fun choice exactly yeah Mm -hmm. exactly so rebecca was like cosplaying right as like good grammy um but this is a quote directly from the book it says angel's birth was the glaring crack in the perfect glass the perfect terrifying manifestation of everything that could have gone wrong with the woman who of course had everything oh my god that's so fucking dumb as if like this poor little disabled baby is any worse than any of the horrific things Rebecca has already done that's why but to Rebecca it's like oh my god a reason for me to be the victim my god my grandbaby is sick? Yeah, exactly. It's like um it's like Munchausen's by proxy, only it's like not actually Munchausen, it's just you're living your like victimization through your disabled yes. children. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh my god. So fucking Savior up. complex. Like Right. Exactly. Ugh. And basically Rebecca always told Terry and Tony that it was their fault that Angel was born that way because Tony took LSD a few times. So it must have messed with his sperm and his genetics. And then Craig Unger, like the shady little gay man he is, put in like giant parentheses being like, research later goes to show that LSD does not affect the genetics of anyone and like does not affect DNA and that it can be used to treat x y and z actually so yeah. rebecca's a fucking idiot thanks craig <laughs> thanks craig we all know we all know thanks craig yeah now we know oh yeah yay um and then basically at one point rebecca had taken over so much that terry and tony moved back to hawaii and left angel with rebecca because it was too painful for terry to even like watch and terry <sighs> didn't want the baby to be alive in the first place <sighs> so it's like oh my lord And Terry had a feeling that the only reason these doctors were keeping the baby alive and telling Rebecca that it was like possible for this baby to live a normal life was because they wanted access to Rebecca's wealth. They were getting paid so much to keep this baby alive. And Terry saw that happening and was like, this is just more people around my mom trying to appease to her for money. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God. Wow. I feel so bad for everyone involved. Isn't that awful? Yes. No, that's literally awful. I feel so bad for little Angel and, of course, for Terry. Like, yeah. Terry didn't even want this fucking child. Any fucking child. hmm Oh, my God. So sad. I had no idea that in 67, abortions were still impossible to get in the United States. I kind of had in my head that there were a few states that you could get abortions in in the late 60s like especially for a rich person that's why it's shocking because i'm like you really couldn't find anyone to even give you an illegal one with all that money i do think that that isn't necessarily true 
but yeah and i do think that terry just went with japan well because this is why i mentioned hawaii too because Mm. at the time at this time and i know this because my grandma um like experienced this that Mm. in hawaii abortions obviously were very dangerous and not accessible Mm. and a lot of girls in hawaii would fly out to japan just to get abortions oh so she was in hawaii so yeah i think she might have gotten the idea from being in hawaii i from like the hawaiian people around her being like you can go to japan and they'll do it you know what i mean i do i do that makes a lot more sense yeah mm-hmm. that that seemed like more it was very common plan. in hawaii yeah yeah especially if she's trying to hide it from her mom like exactly. why would you do it on the east coast you know because all of these doctors know rebecca exactly exactly and okay, rebecca yeah. had told them all to report back she really thought she was going to be able to just go to japan and do it but rebecca even yeah. had eyes on her oh jesus so <sighs> sick so sick yeah. like i literally hate rebecca and like i know it's sad but i i really do I know. um but yeah that was that was all of chapter 11 i guess the crack in the glass was angel i i totally misspoke at the beginning the crack in the mirror was not edith i guess mm-hmm. but i guess the whole book makes it seem like edith is is the real yeah like the one that it all fell on like it all fell on the the ultimate kind of like um scapegoat? like canary in the coal mine mhm mhm yeah yeah like terry and tony ran away to hawaii cuz they were just like I, i'm done i can't do this yeah. yeah meanwhile edith is still locked yeah. up in a mental hospital at this point you know oh my goodness yes okay so yeah, we get to chapter 12. Mm. Um, this is where Rebecca... She starts- First of all, the chapter name, Don't Dress Her in Organdy. Yeah, what does that mean? What is um, Organdy? Do you know? Yeah, Organdy is that, like, gauzy fabric. Um, It's a type of fabric. Let me... It's like sheer oh. and like um you know like when yeah, you rub yeah. it yeah yeah so it's kind of like this gauzy fabric I don't know what it could possibly mean in the context of this oh well there is a quote that it makes sense from okay great it, it's something Edith says but um not till the very end of this chapter oh per- perfect okay great. But I just didn't know what material organdy was, and now I'm like, oh, oh yes, yes, it's that sheer kind of crinkly, um, interesting, like not tool. exactly tool, not tool, more like mm-hmm. shiny. It's like ball gown, oh, uh, like more of a silkier tool, softer. Ex- and, exactly, mm-hmm. that's how I would describe it. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the chapter where Rebecca gets sick of, I guess, being grandma to Angel, and she gets sick of um, driving the doctors in every day and she's like we actually just need someone to just like take care of it now it the baby holy fucking shit oh my god yeah so rebecca outsources to london where there's um this crazy nanny network because at the time there was like the big culture of like british nannies 
Um, oh, like Mary Poppins. Yes. And it was a big culture and they explained it actually. Craig Unger laid it out saying that it had to do with the war and how a lot of these women lost their husbands in the war and the ones who lost their husbands oftentimes clung to other families um, to be mm-hmm. nannies and to be support and to like put their their energy into helping take care of other people's kids because they couldn't have their own now you know mm-hmm. like it was mm-hmm. like its own culture it's not just like nanny 911 and like mary poppins mm-hmm. and like all of these like archetypes like it comes from a historical context which i had no idea wow and a lot of these british nannies were getting hired by politicians and by very rich um like what are they called? Mm. Rich uh, socialites and um, oh. wow! Yeah, so so Diplomats, about socialites, yeah. millionaires, yes, well like, do like the president outsourced their nanny at the time. Like oh all my of God. these, yes, wow. and this nanny was in the same network as all of these like very bougie nannies. Oh sure, of course, yeah. But of course, the bougie nannies describe her as like this very grounded, like she did she didn't care about the money. She mm. really just wanted to like help and like poured herself into every family. Of course. And I really am a fan of this woman. Um <laughs> her name is Miss Weeks. As we go, I'll refer to her as Miss Weeks. That's her name. Love it. Um, so yeah, Rebecca hired Miss Weeks from London and flew her in within like four hours of talking like reaching out to her i guess miss weeks asked for at least 24 hours she said can i have at least 24 hours to get ready to go and rebecca said no this baby needs your care now and miss weeks cares so much that she just did it oh my lord oh my lord so the Miss Weeks basically cared for Angel as if she was like her baby, like woke up with her every day, did everything with her all day. Um, and in the time that Miss Weeks was taking care of Angel, she Miss Weeks says that Angel loved Rebecca, even though she was blind and everything. She could hear Rebecca's footstep, footsteps I hate coming. That. I know. I hate this. I know. The baby could hear Rebecca's footsteps coming and she would shake her right leg in excitement whenever Rebecca would come in or she would hear her voice. And that was like quite a feat for her to have the motor skill to do that and let alone like express it as an emotion. And Miss Weeks like thought that was very sweet. Um, And it's funny because the doctor and the nanny have two different sides to the story, which is very clear. Mm-hmm. Terry was right. That being paid, the doctor being paid. Yes, 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 yes. Changed her view of the situation, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So the doctor told Craig Unger that Terry and Tony did not care for their child and that they were narcissists. And, um, before she was in the care of Rebecca and Miss Weeks and this doctor, they were letting a Hawaiian person raise her. How dare oh they? My oh my god! Like saying wow. it as if it was like such a um, like crime, such a yeah. heinous thing for a Hawaiian person to raise a child. Jesus it was so funny. Um, and then it, and then Craig, like next paragraph is like, but the nanny said. 
that she doesn't blame Terry and that Terry was heartbroken, not a narcissist. And that every time she would make the time to come see Angel and that she would come see the baby, she would spend like 10 minutes with her. And anytime she would touch her, she would burst into tears and have to leave. Oh my lord! And every single time she came to see the baby, it ended in tears and with Miss Weeks having to bring her out to the garden oh. and and comfort her. Oh, my God. Not her. Not Ms. Weeks being a nanny to Terry. Yes. Oh, my God. The thing is, is I would have a lot less sympathy for Terry if she hadn't wanted to get an abortion in the first place. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're forcing this person to be a mother and they're like, okay, I guess I have to be a mother. And then to just watch your baby suffer constantly. Like, that's already hard enough when you did want to give birth to a healthy exactly. baby. Exactly. Yes. But, like, all this, like, I don't know. It's like, I would feel so bad for her if her baby was, like, you know, had no developmental issues whatsoever. Yeah. Like, if her baby was completely healthy, I would still feel so bad for her. Yeah. Like, it's not really the fact that her baby's disabled. It's like, she doesn't want this. Yeah. And that's just another layer to the pain. Exactly. Like, now when she does see her baby that she didn't want in the first place, she's seeing it die. Like... Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, And her mother care about it seemingly way more more than than she ever cared about her children. Yeah. Literally. Um, but yeah, that's what Miss Week said. She said Terry, Terry's heart couldn't handle it. That's what she said. Um, yet the doctor was saying they're narcissists. They didn't want to take care of their child and da-da-da. anything to make Rebecca feel good. Anything to make exactly. Rebecca feel like a savior. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the nanny said, and I quote: Terry was told to leave the child and that she would never live, so she did. And Rebecca was the one that decided to keep her alive. Like. Wow. So after Angel, the baby was a year and a half old. The nanny said that things started changing with Rebecca's attitude towards the baby. As that happens with narc grandmas. Yeah. Um, Because the minute. Yeah, you'll see. Um. Rebecca went into the nursery one day and she was having um, a TV appearance. So she was all dressed up and she had her hair tied up in a gray bow. And the nanny said that Angel could see lights and like shadows and stuff and that she must have seen the shadow of the bow on Rebecca's head and noticed that it was different, obviously, than Rebecca's just head. Uh And that Angel pulled at the bow which the nanny was like, wow, Angel's like making developmental process, yeah, like yeah, progress. Sure. She saw the bow. She knew it was something different on Rebecca's head and she went to reach for it. Like that's so impressive yeah. for her motor skills, for her cognitive skills. In general, babies reaching out to anything is very good. Exactly. It's very I mean, good for babies in mind, to reach out and touch things. This baby is a year and a half old now, yeah. and this is an impressive feat that she's exactly out yes, like, yes. Like how heartbreaking. Um, and also just any like a baby moving in general, it's like oh my god, what glee, yeah. what 
wonder in a baby moving. A baby reaching for me, even if it's yes. for my bow. Yeah, like, that's it, it just goes to show that Rebecca didn't care about this baby. She just cared about having like something rely on her. Like, mm. um, but yeah. So the nanny was amazed, but then she watched as Rebecca flung. That's the word that they used. Flung the baby back into the nanny's arms and she stormed out and she said now i have to go redo my hair oh my god and miss weeks said that this is when she realized that the novelty was wearing off for rebecca the novelty of being a grandma and having a baby around um and then edith comes in and Miss Weeks said that Edith was always observing her and Angel and that Edith was always watching over the baby. And she mm-hmm. always had like a protective force um, for this baby. And now, mind and, you, this is like and, a 16 year old at this point. Exactly. This is yeah. Edith, 16 or 17, the crazy, mentally ill, like destructive teenager that edith is with so many problems right the problem child um and that one day she went up to miss weeks and said please don't let anything happen to angel um and she told miss weeks that rebecca used to dress her up in nice dresses and show her off to guests and made a spectacle of her at dinner parties too and she doesn't want that to happen to the baby and she said to Miss Weeks, whatever you do, don't dress her in organdy. Wow. Because that's the type of fabric she would put her in for the dinner parties to be like, oh, look at my look at my daughter. Look how pretty she is. Look at I have a daughter. Yeah. Wow. So organdy being that like sheer light sparkling fabric mm-hmm. where it's literally like just to make like little girls look like dolls. essentially and like exactly in organdy babies become dolls they don't become human beings so edith being in her gilded cage watching her mother be a horrific narcissist treating her little angel niece because angel literally is edith's niece watching her like you know get to the point where she's no longer caring for her in any real way other than what she can get her she's like please like don't let her become the object that i became yeah she's like and i love that that is a part of her saying don't let anything happen to her because she knows putting her in organdy leads to the performance of it all and that's what's damaged me so much and put me in this cage yeah yeah, that's the thing. Organdy really is like the the dress that china dolls have yeah. and porcelain dolls have. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a um practical fabric and it's not a fabric no. that you put a child in to to be a child. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No child is doing normal child things in organdy. Unless yeah, unless they want to wear a poofy dress and run Unless they're doing it. dress up yeah exactly (laughs) and then it's tool it's not organdy exactly exactly like (laughs) yeah but um yeah i think that chapter was like 
one of the most heartbreaking reading about that poor fucking baby that was just like kept alive to be Rebecca's doll. Mm-hmm. When she had three kids that were all off the fucking rails in the meantime. I want to take a pause before we get to the next chapter. Good. And try to kind of analyze this in a lens to connect to Taylor. Oh, okay. Because that is why we're here. So true. Um, That's so right. Yeah, and we haven't mentioned Taylor at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just so interesting reading all this dark shit and then, like, Mm. comparing it to the piece of literature that connects Taylor to this, which is The Last Great American Dynasty. Mm Mm-hmm. And it goes to show Taylor's crazy sense of irony mm-hmm. and, like, dry humor and dark humor. I mean, the fact that she wrote, like, an upbeat song being, like, Rebecca went up and, like, and this is, this is the, this is the work that she's basing her information of, from that song, that bop of a song off of. Yeah, and the song that she decided, like, she decided to compare herself to Rebecca Harkness, like we're cutting the same cloth, and this is like a horrific narcissist who destroyed the lives of everyone around her. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, she was also used. Like, Lord knows, people also used Rebecca Harkness. Yeah, she was not treated well by other people. Like, she had a hard life for all intents and purposes. No one's yeah. denying that, but she's also evil. Like she's cruel, yes. and and that's how narcissists are formed. It's from trauma, like exactly, yeah. And it doesn't excuse that they're narcissists, but yeah, she had a hard life. That's why she's like this. So why is why? I just think it's so funny. Like, how did Taylor read this book and just be like, "This is a normal little silly song I can sing about." And we know that she changed the details. We know that she fictionalized her in very small ways. Mm -hmm. So it's like she is creating the version of Rebecca Harkness that is palatable. She's making, it's a very white feminist thing to do. It is. Isn't that what all of white feminism is, is like, just applauding white women for for being destructive yeah yeah forgetting that like when white women were also you know fighting for like suffrage they were also like enacting horrific racist policies and Mm -hmm. like you know encouraging eugenics like it's just, it's like we lift up these, like, women and then pretend that none of their faults exist. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, Taylor included some of her faults. Like, oh, she was a bad girl. Like, she didn't care about mm-hmm. people. And that's actually good. Like, that's a good thing that I want to celebrate. And she was just a rebel. Yeah. It's weird. And to me, I see it more of, like, like how her and Jack talk about it. And Jack's like, but it is about you. 
and like it, it actually is about you. I think she's taking the parts of Rebecca's personality that she felt she resonated with and embellishing those parts. Mm-hmm. And that bothers me to the same extent. Yeah, I agree. Because I don't I do really know how you. you can read this book and be like, oh, I see parts of myself in her. Yeah, definitely not. And it's it's interesting, too, because all of Kaylor's other works seem to be being like, oh, I actually resonate the most with Edith, her daughter. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. And that's and I where don't the know. metaphors actually come in. Right. And then I think about The Last Great American Dynasty, and I wonder, what if she's singing it from Edith's perspective in a very, like, cheeky way of, like, yeah, you know, Rebecca riding up on the afternoon train. She's so chaotic and crazy, like, in a very irony way of, like, hmm. right? Rebecca was just the loudest woman this town has ever seen, but me, her daughter, Edith, hmm. she drove me to literally kill myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. I, I think she sees herself more in Edith, and you'll see too in this in this chapter, like why even more so. But I, it's just so fat. I don't know what the fuck Taylor's endgame was in like, it, she knew people were gonna go searching and digging about Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, she did. She definitely. So what? Did. Like maybe, maybe we haven't gotten to the end of the book, and maybe there's things that we're missing, and a point to all of this but for now i just don't really know yeah you know like she's so intentional i just i don't think she was just like this would be a fun thing to write about yeah i don't want to believe that she would do that so anyways on to chapter 13 Mm. which is titled a chic way to go now we know 13 is Taylor's number two. So this, the contents of this chapter are insanely coincidental yes. to the ways that they tie back to Taylor um, yes. compared to other chapters. Because how the fuck are there so many connections to Taylor in, in chapter 13? Of course there is. Why wouldn't there of be? Of course. Yeah, exactly. And this chapter, funny enough, is all about Edith. So. Mm-hmm. Um, It starts out with explaining that she did attempt suicide at 17 at the Watch Hill house. She tried to jump out of her bedroom window. Um, She was hospitalized and put in a psych ward where she was only released for certain major events. So she was released for Terry's wedding. Um, And a family friend said that at the wedding she looked beautiful, but she was always in the shadows. Um, Ugh, people and the family love. Friend, yeah, and I'm like, what does that mean? Like, it's okay to just say she was mistreated. Yeah. Why do you think she was in the shadows? Like, there's a little bit know. of like a critical thinking you have to. Yeah. Consider. Seriously. People don't just sit in the shadows because they want to. <laughs> um, and they also said that there was an incredible sadness about Edith, which, of course. Of course. Um, one of the quotes from another friend said, nobody could be sane with the life that Edith had. Somebody was always with her, a caretaker or someone who was watching her. And at Terry's wedding, she actually got really angry and she verbally like outlashed 
and she started screaming at Rebecca saying she wishes she would die and wishes Rebecca would die. And um, Rebecca had someone take her away and take her back to the psych ward. Mm. And then whenever Rebecca was asked about like Edith and like her influence on Edith's issues, she would always say, I did the best I could with my shaped brain. Classic. Speaking of eugenics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what? That's crazy. And then um, at one point, Rebecca was so distraught by the fact that Edith had all of these mental health problems that she actually hired a specific employee just to investigate um, their lineage to see if there was any incestual relationships um, or offspring that could have led to Edith having these problems. That's the dumbest thing I've literally ever heard. Like, are you serious? Like, that is so typical for parents to look everywhere except in the mirror. Like, of all the kind of absurd pivots that parents make to not take responsibility for something, this is one of the most absurd that I've ever heard of. Hiring a private investigator to go back into the lineage because, oh, there must have been inbreeding if my daughter's sad, if my daughter's feeling suicidal. Not even though literally everyone in the world has been like, Oh, your daughter is treated horribly. Like Salvador Dali literally painted her in a gilded cage as a child. And Rebecca's your good like, friend. Yeah. Your good friend. Like <laughs> your good friend. That's right. Your gambling buddy. Yeah, seriously. Um, no, that's exactly it's so funny. It's like just outsource the blame in any way that you can. And I guess in like the 60s, it was oh it must have been incest it must have been lsd it must have been xyz like no rebecca you're crazy and you're traumatizing your children yeah it's actually you the problem is literally you rebecca literally Mm. but you know what she did the best she could with her shaped brain oh my god i still cannot believe that she's literally like ugh, god just literal eugenics. I hate how funny she is, too. Like, sometimes the oh, things she's... Like, her little quotes are, like, so camp. But I'm like, you're so annoying. I know. It's a narcissist thing, I think. Um, because, you know, Trump, like, also every once in a while would say something genuinely funny. And yeah. I would be tickled. And I'd be yeah. like, ugh. If only he was literally just a TV host. That's why. It's only funny because... To us, it's camp, but they're, like, kind of dead serious. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she hired the employee to investigate. She said, there's no way that this is just because she's my daughter. Um, <laughs> and one of the um, quotes from Craig Unger was, Dolly had painted Edith in a cage, and now she was living in one. Now she was living with okay. one because well, I mean, she, yeah. I'm like, thanks, Craig. We made that conclusion a very yeah. long time ago. Yeah, exactly. Like she's always been living in a cage, but yeah. Thank you. yeah. But now it's like actually physically um, institutionalized. Yeah. Institution. Yeah. Yes. And being held against her will and like, in a oh, cage yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Like, the farther we get along with this birdcage thing and how, like, literal it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very scary. If Taylor is trying to signal us with birdcages. I'm like, Taylor, that's a very serious metaphor. This is what I don't want to think about. Like, the fact that she posted that video a few days after our original Blue Blood talking about the birdcage. How she posted the picture of her Grammys and all the books. In that of, and of her father taking a picture. Please, I don't want to think about this. I really don't want to think I about know. it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> not me begging you to not talk about uh, something during a podcast where that's our only goal is to talk about these things. I have a few interesting <sighs> little things that tie back to that that I'll mention at the end of this episode. Oh, um, okay. I think Taylor may be sending us little signals in other ways having to do with the Harknesses. And okay. it might be a little bit, it might be a little bit um, psychosis of me, but it's also mm-hmm. a very weird coincidence. So I'll run it by you and the Patreon audience, you know? Okay. That's the thing. That's what I have I to do that. with those thoughts. Exactly. Our Patreon, we should start advertising it as like, um, psychosis pilots like the way that you have a pilot for a tv show yeah it's like our little psychosis theories also and that's the thing they do pick up because joe alwyn austin swift has been that's the thing they do pick up (laughs) they do pick up they do oh speaking of joe I didn't tell Patreon yet, and I didn't give you an update yet. My roommate mm. was in Ireland when him and Paul were there promoting normal people. Okay, and they were French kissing, right? Is that right? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, they weren't French kissing. But okay. for the campness of this bit, yes, they were. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... She told me that she was in a pub and that they walked in, Paul and Joe, together. And I asked her... Oh, in a pub with her school friends. (laughs) Right, with her school friends. Well, actually, because she lived in Ireland, so she really was visiting her friends. Um, And that... Because I asked her, I was like, what was it like? Because I wouldn't recognize Paul Mescal and Joe Alwyn walking into a pub. Like, I just simply wouldn't look up. And she said that since... Everyone in the town knew they were there for like the movie festival premiere oh, or something. Yes. It, like the whole vibe switched when they walked in and that it got like very quiet and that everyone oh. was like kind of watching them. And she did say that Joelwyn does just look like a guy. Really? Just a guy? like she was like, Paul looks famous. Like he looks like someone. But when like Joe walking next to him, he just looked like a guy. Like he looked like he could have been like Paul's assistant. No. And I was like, oh, that's that funny. is fascinating. Yeah. You would and think my, my roommate is not a gayler, also. So j- j- this is like unbiased, like truly just telling me how it exactly. was. Exactly. You know, that's what I was going to say. That's the thing. It's like you would think that the mystique of being Taylor's boyfriend would be enough to have a golden glow on him when he, I mean, literally golden glow. That's Where's the magnetic force? I, I, is it repelling? Well, yeah. (laughs) I just thought that was hilarious. Cause I, I it's just confirmation. Like if they walked into a pub, I would think the same thing. I'd be like, Oh, it's a guy and Phoebe Bridger's boyfriend. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> it's a prince and his assistant. It's a prince and his princess. I wish. I wish Joe had Joe's a princess, princess vibe to him. <laughs> I know Poor he baby. Have that. He really wants that. He's he really Cinderella. wants to be a princess. He's just like Cinderella. Cinderella, Cinderella. Pose for pop shot Cinderella. Yeah. You can't go to the ball. Zoe's already going. Oh, no. Not Zoe <laughs> taking his place. <sighs> Anyways, I had to share that with Patreon. Thank I kept, you. Uh, I kept trying to remind myself. I know it's a little bit of a um, detour, but here we are. Anyways, um, Craig Unger points out the obvious. Edith is now living in a cage. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, thank you, Craig. Thank you. And meanwhile, as Edith is locked up in the fucking mental hospital, Rebecca is trying to launch her modeling career, thinking that it's going to help her with her problems. (laughs) Oh, my God. As um, modeling is famously an industry. Good for mental health. Yeah, exactly. One of the most so reparative. Yeah, it's it's truly like rehab. Like it's it really helps people feel better. God, posing um, together in McCall's magazine. Yeah. And you know what the article was that they posed together for? The story was it was something about like women who admit that they have privilege. Like it was something um like like social socialite women who admittedly have privilege. Oh, oh no, God. that's what it is. Admittedly privileged women. Oh my God. And their daughters. So it was like, ah! these, like nepotism. Like it was like, um, like politicians and their daughter and like, or politician wife and daughter. Like it was like that dynamic. And Rebecca and Edith were one of the features. I couldn't find this photo shoot anywhere. I couldn't find this magazine anywhere. Devastating. Everything oh is so God. old. It's like no one was scanning the McCall magazine issue with Edith and Rebecca Harkness yeah. in it. You know what Sadly. I mean? Sadly. Yeah. But Sadly. again, I think this is something that we can probably find in the yeah. New York City Public Library. No, that's why. The, I'm um, like it. The, uh, what are they called? The slides. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. That's why there's so many things um, in my notes for this book that I, like, have noted that I want to look into in yeah. a deeper way, like, individually. Yeah. Like, something like this. Or, like, um, exactly. Rebecca's music. I really want to find, like, her catalogs because you mm-hmm. can't find it, like, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. So, Rebecca also set up a photo shoot for Edith with one of the photographers from the Harkness Ballet Company. And... The photographer said that Rebecca warned him that Edith is unbalanced and that the shoot would be a very delicate situation. And, like, basically was like, she's crazy, so good luck shooting with her. But, like, she needs this. And then the photographer said to Craig Unger, he said, Edith talked so honestly, looked so frail, so fragile, almost poetic, I didn't understand how they thought that she could be unbalanced. She made much more sense than her mother. And then another close friend said, Edith wasn't nearly as suicidal or troubled as you might assume. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I don't think you and I need any more convincing in the fact Mm -hmm. that people that are suicidal and crazy are Are actually very normal. (laughs) 
exactly. And it's circumstance that makes them want to die. Yeah. When you're just like hanging out with someone that you don't know, it's like, oh, hi. Hello. Yes. My mother's making me become a model now. Hello. (laughs) And then her boyfriend that she had when she was 16, around the time she got institutionalized, he said that her psychiatric problems nearly didn't show. And that she um, talked about Rebecca as if she was just someone she knew and not her mom. Like, it was just, like, her mom was, like, a passing thought to her. And that, that like, it wasn't as big of a deal in, in Edith's everyday life as it was to Rebecca and, like, Rebecca's posse, you know? Of course. Of course. Because Edith That's just didn't want to anything to do with it that's it she just didn't want to be a part of it parents literally love claiming their children's problems as their own burden to bear yes because they're martyrs because they're martyrs yes exactly so i have no doubt in the world that edith like trying to kill herself um was like to her like oh yeah like that's when i did that whatever yeah and (laughs) then her mother being like, my poor... Oh, it must be incest. <laughs> my poor ancestral child. Like She's unbalanced. If, like, if I lived on the third floor of Watch Hill, Rhode Island, I would have tried to jump out at 17 too. The hell? like Yeah, seriously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when, aren't we all? Come on. Yeah, especially, exactly. And it's like, also, it's like, when you... Yeah. I mean, we don't even need to go into it. If you know, you know. That's all yeah, I have to like, say. We're all yeah. mentally ill here, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, this is the parallel to Taylor that made me like want to rip my head out. Um, yeah. So when Edith... This is a quote from the book directly. When Edith talked about it herself, she dismissed her quote-unquote Peter Pan episode, as she called it, as a merely childish impulse. It obviously tickled her fancy, her sense of irony to talk about it. She showed me the window which she jumped, pointing out the dolly portrait of her in a birdcage, as if it were this spookily perceptive painting, a prophecy that became true. She described suicide as something she just decided to do one day as a call for help. Mm -hmm. She mentioned that she had considered suicide from the age of five. She said, I jumped out of this window, and guess what? I live. It's just so interesting, the Peter Pan-ness of it. It's like, on one level, you could take it as she was being childish. You know, she never wanted to grow up. Mm -hmm. Like, that is a real reason for suicidal ideation, um, especially for teens. It's because you're terrified of growing up. Um, Mm -hmm. You're terrified of going on to the next stage. So, again, like, that makes sense for Peter Pan. Um, But then also the Peter Pan episode, the idea of trying to fly outside of your window. Mm -hmm. Like, as if she was just trying to fly. Like, it is so poetic to call it a Peter Pan episode Mm -hmm. when she tried to fly outside of a window. Um, It really is. Ugh, in so many, so much more ways than one. What a perceptive person she is. Yeah, and it makes me think about when Taylor was possibly reading, I mean, obviously she read this, like Taylor reading this and and the way that she resonates so much with Peter and Mm -hmm. that whole story with Mm -hmm. Peter Pan and all the references she makes to it, like, 
just I could see her connecting with Edith just over this small thing, let alone also the birdcage. Exactly. You know? I do. Yeah, I completely um, agree. I also really, really love the way that Craig describes Peter Pan and connects it to Edith. I think it mm-hmm. could very well apply to Taylor, too. Um He says, Edith could not really be a child. Even the reference to Peter Pan, which she made repeatedly, was suggestive. After all, this childhood fantasy figure was someone who had run away from home to the Neverland, a place for lost children who had fallen from their perambulators when the nurse was looking the other way. Peter Pan had not the slightest desire to have a mother. He thought that parents were overrated persons. That's a quote, like, from the original Peter Pan story. Mm-hmm. And I just had never even looked at it that way. I mean, of course, like, the Peter Pan ran away from home to to be with other children who were, felt misunderstood. And yeah, that's all she was trying to do was fly out the window and go to Neverland. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. I mean, no, I mean, yeah, exactly, though. Yeah. Um, and then the chapter ends with one of the most heartbreaking things I read in this book. Um, And it's Edith telling Rebecca after Terry's wedding that she was vowing to kill herself after that wedding. She was like, I'm done. And what Rebecca said in response was, I'm going to tell her to do it and do it well. I've got to call her and tell her how she should do it. How should she do it? Is there a chic way to go? This time, don't fuck it up. Okay, RuPaul. This time, don't fuck it up. Exactly. Yeah. Rebecca is a RuPaul. Like, literally. I do think that's A gay menace. Like. (laughs) Yes. A A loud gay menace. Villain. Yes, yes, yes. I, I mean, that is one of the cruelest things in the entire world. Is there a chic way to go? And there was like a whole New York Times um, article written when this book came out in the 80s that was titled, Is There a Chic Way to Go? And it summarizes um, this chapter and Blue Blood. Like it was kind of like a promotional article. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they highlighted this chapter because of how fucking. I mean, also the fact that Taylor is living in a house that Edith like tried to kill herself in is crazy. Oh, yeah, it really is. It really puts a whole spin on that. Because the photos that we've seen the most of the Holiday House are, of course, at the Tamerica 4th of July party. Yeah. What what a terrifying spin it puts on everything, knowing that the backyard they were frolicking in was the location of this. Yeah, it's very weird. I don't know how Taylor sleeps at night. Like, probably not in that house anymore. (laughs) She doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's all of chapter 13, which is some of the craziest shit we've found out so far. And of course it was in 13. Yeah. And it's just about Edith, which like is the Taylor character. Yeah. And the Peter Pan connections. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Ugh. 
so now we've heard about Terry, right? And we've heard about Edith up until this point. Um, chapter 14 is about Alan, who's Rebecca's son. Mm. Alan, they describe as having a very high IQ, but he was very smart, but he was just so emotionally immature um, that he just basically turns into like a crazy power hungry weapon yielding incel. Oh my God. Um, so they said that he jumped from hobby to hobby at first. He started out liking cars and then he liked motorcycles and then he liked like four wheelers and then he moved into hunting and then he got really into weapons and then he got really into guns and then he got really into heavy machinery guns and then he got into military equipment weaponry in which he became friends with many higher-ups in the military in the u.s military so that they would permit his weapons, even though he was not a part of the military. That is terrifying. That's terrifying. He took several trips to South America to Mm. look for gold Mm. and to hunt. Mm -hmm. He would buy new cars and things and then get bored of them and give them away to people that he barely knew because that's what his mom did. And he said, "That's I thought that was the proper thing to do. Oh. Um, and to him, they were, like the quote from the book says, but they were not just toys to him. They were means of power, which is like <laughs> the origin story of every school shooter in yeah, America. Absolutely. And like the military industrial complex. Okay. And then it's like, okay, so school shooters, obviously terrifying because they have guns but now take this terrifying incel and give him military grade like heavy machinery and the all the power all the power and the money in the world to to get away with owning all of this that is so terrifying like honestly it really puts a new twist on um Rebecca just using the little fire truck and making loud noises for her neighbor. Right. It's like, well, Rebecca got a fucking innocent. tank. Yeah. I mean, she could have. She probably would have if she could have. Yeah. Yeah. If her Rebecca probably would have started like a war if she could have. Like, but um, it also said that Alan really wanted to be a cop. Oh. Of course, he wanted to be a cop. I mean, literally, yeah. I mean, like, he's just, like, literally the perfect example pipeline of, like, the the whole militarization of the United States. It's insane. And when I said that I was going to skip a lot of his details, this is what I mean. Because he, like, helped some rich, powerful guy. I don't even remember who he was or why he had money and, like, all this power and whatever. Um, but he helped some rich guy launder $2.6 million in cash like, taking several trips overseas and, like, transporting these, like, bundles of cash for this man under no pretense other than this man's word that he would pay him back one day. Um, and the only reason that Alan went along with it is because um, the guy would help him with getting his weapons permitted and having his, like, 
big guns that he would carry around to protect the money. Like he really liked just, he thought it was payment enough to be able to carry those weapons to, and to have a reason to carry them and something to defend and like a reason to shoot someone if it was necessary. Like he thought that was payment enough. Good Lord. That's insane. That's really insane. Um, And it doesn't say in this chapter what ends up happening to Alan. I'm sure they will explain it down the line, but I had to Google it for my own peace of mind to know that this man was not still walking my earth. Um, He, (laughs) I'm pretty sure, went to jail because he did end up murdering someone. Fab. Obviously. Obviously. Of course he did, right? Yeah. Of course he did. I mean, I'm surprised it was only one. I feel like it was probably more than one. And it was in a bar fight. Okay, so if that's the only one that he was caught for... Exactly. Yeah. That he was caught for after transporting millions of money. Millions of money. But yeah, that's the end of chapter 14. Mm. And that's the end of what I read up to. I'm gonna quickly share my psychosis theory. Okay. Because I did promise, so I have to. Yes. Um, Yes. In my Googling of what happened to Alan, I ended up on a memorial page for um, Edith. Okay. And that's where I found out that Edith and and Rebecca are buried at Woodlawn in the Bronx. Okay. And I, there's also a virtual memorial on that page. It's like one of the top Google searches when you search Edith Harkness. It's like the first or second one. And it's like a virtual memorial where you can like buy flowers and like lay flowers and leave a little message. Oh my god. That's so weird. It's like a... Yeah, it's, it's just one of those... Um, online like mm, i mean i've heard of that but for someone yeah no i've heard of that but for someone that died in the early 80s that's so weird yeah it is obviously that website did not exist when she died yeah that's true and none of her like immediate family is still yeah okay so what's your crack theory but so, my theory is that Taylor left Edith flowers on findagrave.com. Really? Why is this? Because, um, hold on, I have to do a quick Google search. What day was the NYU speech? Oh my god. What exact day? It was May. I should know this. I feel like I was counting down that day for so long. May 18th? Yeah, because it was right. It was it, May 13th was the Friday. So if I go back to May, mm-hmm. someone named Rosie left a little angel on May 12th, which like that was okay. That's not yeah. really the one that's suspicious to me. Okay. May 21st, left by Anonymous. Okay. It's a little sticker that says, you were thought of today. And then again, on May 21st, little flowers left by Anonymous. And then again on May 22nd, a little pot of daisies left by Anonymous. And then May 24th, another little pot of daisies left by Anonymous. 
And then May 25th, a, f- a bouquet with sunflowers left by Anonymous. And then on May 26th, a little bouquet of purple flowers left by Anonymous. Okay. How frequent now, are things left for Edith? That's what I was about to say. So before May of 2022, the last one was in August 21. Oh. And then there was one in July 21. And these are not anonymous, these ones. Okay. All of the other ones, for the most part, are not anonymous. Well, do you think... Okay, this is kind of silly. But do you think that those are our listeners? That's what I was wondering, and that's why I wanted to bring it up. Because I, I want right to know... That was right after we released the episode about her. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, it's either either Taylor or it's Archers, which either way I think is beautiful. I think so too, especially the daisies. That's why. I want to know if it was one of you, and if it wasn't one of you, then I'm going to assume it was Taylor. Taylor. It, it's one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. I just like that's that's too specific yeah. with timing. Oh yeah, with no, us I mean, talking no about Edith and mind. the bird cages, and then the exactly. bird cage from NYU, and the speech happening, and yeah, uh, that's the thing. Like she was thought of, like she has been thought of a lot. Hmm. I think that's very that's very special and sweet, and um, I'm very happy for any Archers listeners who went and did that, and I'm also very happy yeah. if Taylor is, you know, thinking of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And someone named Bobby Kelly leaves her flowers, like, every few months, and also wow. is the one that uploaded the photo of her that's on here. Wow. And I'm like, is this Bobby Bobby? He's not alive still. There's no way. But maybe it's Bobby Bobby's like son or something. Bobby. Bobby, Bobby Rebecca's bestie, Rebecca's GBS bestie. lover that never. But how old was he in 80? Because he could absolutely still be alive. Oh, Bobby Kelly's face. I, I just clicked his profile and he is not. He's, it's, I mean, he could be related to the other Bobby, but he's a very big contributor on this website for the Vanderbilt, for the Sloans, like all of these very rich old money names. So I think that he's just like a designated kind of like grave. um, Weird. Contributor. Yeah. It says that he's added 9,000 memorials and manages 45,000. Okay, Bobby. That's nice. So Bobby Kelly is is just like a worker for for find a grave or for these families. Um, yeah. Okay. Fine. That's fine. That's fine. For like the fortunes, but I just found that very all those interesting. May ones. Yes. Yes, and the anniversary of her death also in a very weird, very very weird coincidence is on. Monday, so the day after this is uploaded is oh the anniversary God. of Edith's 
death. August 22nd. Mm-hmm. Well. So that's why I feel like I owe. <laughs> Not like actually, but I, I just, I don't know. I Edith was just sounds like such a beautiful person and yeah. poet and thinker and like everything that Edith has said every quote from her every idea that Craig has translated or like communicated from Edith has been so well thought out and poor little thing I feel so bad for her that was that was my my psychosis theory that Taylor is secretly leaving virtual flowers for Edith Harkness on findagrave.com I think either way, it's either Taylor or Archer's listeners, and either similarly to how we always say, either she has an astrologer or it's fated and magical and actually in the stars, and I'm good with either option. And with that, I think that we've had enough internet problems for the day, and I'm going to take it upon myself to thank you all for listening. It's been a pleasure, as always, to bring you all the unhinged Taylor Swift content and unhinged Harkness content straight to your little earpods. I hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Archers in Screaming Color. Book Club presents Blue Blood. Thank you. As always. We have one request of you, and that request is to stay, stay, stay homosexual for Taylor. I mean, this is sick. They're just talking on and on. Harkness, blue, blue blood. This is good for business. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. But I'm just like, it's fucking lavender. <laughs> <laughs>